a few announcements uh, before the homily. <clears throat> the Three Hearts Pilgrimage, a 35-mile hike to Clear Creek Monastery in eastern Oklahoma, will take place again this year, later this month. You can see the posters we have out in the Narthex, which has a website you can visit for more information, uh, as well as to register for that pilgrimage. A number of parishioners and I will be participating again this year. Certainly invite more parishioners to do so. It does help, if you'd like to attend the pilgrimage, it helps to sign up on that website uh, right away so that the organizers have a sense of how many people to prepare for. Our Knights of Columbus will offer a spaghetti dinner in the parish hall next Saturday, October 9th, after the evening mass. Uh, the Catholic Charities Appeal continues underway. You'll find in the pews both the Catholic Charities uh, brochure telling us something about the good works done at Catholic Charities, as well as a, an appeal process pledge envelope, and certainly invite uh, you to make use of those to support the good works accomplished uh, by Catholic Charities. We can always use everyone's participation to help reach our parish target goal toward the overall appeal. And I certainly want to thank uh, those of you who have already made a gift to this year's appeal. Catholic college ministry at the Newman Center at UCO impacts many college students, including a number of our own parishioners, to help them encounter Christ and to be leaders in the faith. Uh, if you have a heart to see local Catholic college ministry flourish, you're invited to the Archbishop's Bronco Bash on Wednesday, October 20th. The event begins with Mass at St. John's across town at 6 p.m., and then dinner follows. Individual seats or whole tables at the dinner are available for purchase. Monies raised will help the cost of campus ministry and will help to build a base for planned construction of a new Newman Center. You can look for UCO students in the narthex after Mass. For more details, they'll be wearing t-shirts reading Bronco Catholic. The Pharisees test Jesus in the Gospel passage by asking about marriage and divorce. The force of Jesus' response remains powerful still today in an age marked by many challenges in relationships. The Pharisees, as we know, were a very devout group of Jews who knew the scriptures well. And they indicate that Moses permitted a bill of divorce. In making that admission, they are referring to the teaching of Moses found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4. It's chapter 24. It's the first place in Scripture that mentions a permission for divorce. Jesus, however, responds to the Pharisees by himself quoting the book of Genesis and taking them back to the beginning. It's like he's saying, see how far you've strayed. Get back to God's original idea in mind. In the gospel passage, Jesus interprets the witness in the book of Genesis and indicates that divorce is not the mind of God. And furthermore, that to divorce and remarry is tantamount to adultery. The Catholic Church maintains this divine teaching because it is not human teaching, but comes from God, and man has no authority to change divine teaching. How can we not maintain this teaching if we take the scriptures 
seriously. In the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, we learn that Moses permitted divorce due to the sinfulness of the people and their hardness of heart. But Jesus purifies the vision of his listeners, and he challenges them to live in accord with the mind of God. This gospel lesson is challenging. And I certainly don't want anyone to think that the message today is condemnatory or that the result, if divorce marks your family, should be embarrassment and shame. In speaking about the mind of God and the permanence of marriage, we find a truth that we must hold up. As a pastor, I know well that there are many challenges that come in relationships. I also know, as does the church, that one rightly makes a distinction about the morality involved between one who breaks the marriage vows versus being a spouse who has been unjustly abandoned or divorced against his or her will. And I'm keenly sensitive, too, because divorce has marked my family. But none of this changes that we must uphold what marriage is and we must expect spouses to strive for it, notwithstanding those cases where marriage vows have been irreparably harmed or one spouse refuses to work to improve the relationship. If you have questions about divorce or need to address a new and subsequent marriage that was accomplished outside the Catholic Church, then I urge you to come see one of the parish clergy soon. Father Bali and I and Deacon Pereira will happily guide you. In the Genesis account, we see that the relationship of man and woman, their oneness in the flesh that is a hallmark of marriage, is something found within the very act of creation. It is God's action that results in the creation of man and woman, and it is God's action that they belong together. This is why we believe that marriage is not at all a man-made institution, but a God-made one. And therefore, we accept in faith what God has made. At the same time, man has no ability or right to dissolve what God has united, to change what God has made, or to make other relationships equivalent to marriage. God made marriage within the very order of creation as a covenantal bond between one man and one woman. This is important to note, and all the more so in our troubled age. Notice that Adam does not leave his father and mother to marry Eve. No, Adam and Eve were made for one another and established as fitting partners in life. Since God established marriage and placed it within the very order of creation, for this reason, as the scripture says, all future marriage involves a man leaving his father and mother and clinging to his wife. In other words, marriage involves a permanent unity reflective of that unity in creation that we see in Adam and Eve, and for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife. But these biblical passages have implications far beyond 
the question of marriage and divorce alone. This is so because we find here a scriptural-based anthropology, meaning an understanding of the origin and existence of mankind. This scriptural anthropology presents a biblical vision of creation, the divine institution of marriage, the meaning of the body, the life-creating power of human and spousal love, and more. As Christians, we accept as authoritative, divinely inspired, and inerrant both the Old Testament and the New. And so the lessons of Genesis are brought together with the gospel interpretation given by Jesus into a unified Christian anthropology. Do we accept and embrace this vision of creation, mankind, and moral life, especially as regards relationships like marriage? Do we let this vision transform us and our attitudes? While today's readings touch upon marriage, we can note that this Christian anthropology in the scriptures gives us guidance on many other issues in our secular modern age. In fact, given the tsunami of anti-traditional social constructions and novel ideas in the area of sexuality, gender, and marriage, it is critical that we understand what godless forces in our society are proposing as a substitution for the Christian vision of creation. For if we pull up anchor from the foundations of Christian anthropology, we quickly find ourselves swept away into all types of man-made constructions that are delusions, aided by fairy tale language, presenting itself as a new version of reality. But it is no reality. What are some examples of being unmoored from reality due to rejecting Christian anthropology? I mean things like the separation and rejection of the procreative meaning of sexual love by use of contraception or by sterilization the proliferation of abortion that leaves a baby dead and a woman scarred, at the very least, emotionally and psychologically, so-called gay marriage, the idea that there is no discernible difference or even meaning to the body, to our physicality, such that a man can become a woman or a woman can become a man, the proliferation of made-up genders on an almost daily basis, Things like non-binary, non-conforming, the claims of transgender ideology. The experience of modern life, uprooted from a biblical and Christian anthropology, has consequences, and very serious ones indeed. And we are seeing this all around us precisely because a Christian view is no longer the view of those who drive culture in our world. The experience of modern life, apart from a Christian anthropology, is like trying to tread water right near the edge of Niagara Falls and hoping not to get swept away. The last few years have been marked by radical delusion powered by mainstream media and by leftist elites in our political and moneyed classes. 
There are real people with struggles in all the areas of morality that I've mentioned. They need help, but instead are aided in living a fantasy by these made-up ideas and nonsensical language. The elites with power put forward the stories of such suffering souls in order to tug at the heartstrings by invoking a compassion that is false because it recreates a world that is not based upon reality. Would that our cultural response would be offering real help to the suffering, to help them see reality and to face their challenges rather than going along with the lies and aiding and abetting the delusions that we see all around us. This is what happens when you pull up anchor from reality. Reality reveals itself by the order of creation around us and it can be known by anyone of goodwill. And if you have faith, you can see this reality even more clearly. Is accepting the Lord's teaching demanding? Yes, it certainly is. But accepting his teaching is more than just a religious practice. It has more impact than just what we do or believe as people of faith. It has much deeper meaning and consequence because the Christian vision of creation and mankind and relationship is accessible to all, no matter one's faith or whether one even has faith. The rejection of the Christian vision revealed by God is rejection of reality itself. And we are seeing these consequences all around us. As if on cue, this very week provided me with two relevant examples of what happens when we reject the Christian vision presented us in the scriptures. An op-ed appeared in the New York Times entitled, Divorce Can Be an Act of Radical Self-Love. In this article, the author notes that her marriage was good. There was no abuse or neglect. No one was cheating. In fact, she says, there was love. She notes that she still loves her ex-husband and goes so far as to say that even now, when he walks into the room, her stomach drops like a roller coaster drop, a reference to the breathlessness of love and attraction. She admits, quote, I divorced my husband not because I didn't love him. I divorced him because I loved myself more. End quote. One wonders whether the author realizes what she has just admitted and whether the editors at the New York Times really intend to promote narcissism as a cultural value. Also this week, a Texas abortion provider testified at a House Oversight Committee hearing saying, quote, abortion saves lives. Abortion is a blessing. Abortion is an act of love, 
abortion is freedom, end quote. Brothers and sisters, at this point in human history, we are well beyond. We have surpassed the Pharisees in their testing. What a godless society proposes is not working because it is in opposition to the very order of creation, a creation we cannot pretend does not exist. The lesson from the Lord in the gospel passage is a call to get back to the beginning. It is a lesson to accept God's action in creation and the offer of his kingdom in childlike trust. We often marvel at the age of martyrs and how Christian witnesses confounded whole pagan empires. A new pagan empire is already here. As he said to the Pharisees, Jesus says to us today, it's time to get back to the beginning. It's time to be the saints, the witnesses both the Lord and the world need.